0: Hello there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. It's officially springtime in the mountains. Redbuds and dogwoods are in full bloom, trilliums and phlox line the forest floor, and many of us are tilling and planting gardens to feed ourselves, our families, and our communities. In this episode, we bring you three stories focusing on people who believe in the possibility of agriculture to become part of the solution to the coal economy's decline in Central Appalachia. While each of these stories shares that common belief, ideas about how that will happen and at what scale vary widely. First, we'll hear WMMT's own Jim Webb interviewing Jonathan Webb from App Harvest about their plans to build large-scale, high-tech agricultural greenhouses on reclaimed mining sites across southeastern Kentucky. Webb describes 40-acre greenhouses in the Netherlands that inspired his work and some of the challenges to engineering giant buildings on the sinking earth of a former mountaintop removal site in Pike County, Kentucky. Then, we'll hear a story produced by Benny Becker in 2016 about the annual Appalachian seed swap in Pike County, Kentucky. This piece includes an interview with Joseph Simcox, who aims to be a modern-day Johnny Appleseed, traveling the world to collect and preserve rare heritage seeds. Simcox advocates for the economic possibilities of small Appalachian farmers working together in collective food hubs to become a viable producer for the eastern United States. And finally, we'll hear a story produced by Kelly Haywood in 2017, in which she interviews Letcher County farmer Tim Sanders about his small farm on Indian Creek, which has been in his family since white settlers came to Letcher County. Haywood interviewed Sanders about the heritage livestock breeds he raises and discusses the new opportunities for some additional income for small-scale farmers through selling at county farmers markets in southeastern Kentucky. We're starting with macro approaches and moving to micro approaches to agriculture in the coalfields. To begin, Jim Webb interviews Jonathan Webb about App Harvest's plans to build a 30-acre greenhouse on a former MTR site in Pike County, Kentucky.
1: And we are delighted today here to have our guest on the Attitude, Jonathan Webb, founder and CEO of uh, App Harvest. Jonathan, thank you for uh, joining us here oh, on well, WMT. Well,
2: howdy, Jim. Thank, thank you for having me. I uh, really appreciate appreciate you taking the time to have me out here today.
1: Yeah, well. Uh, i just i've missed you at all the family reunions
2: yeah yeah know? i don't know how uh i don't know how we've gone all these years jim but <laughs> you know your 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 name's legendary out here so oh, it's, yeah. it's finally good to meet my long lost cousin that's right or and uncle i'm not quite sure but yeah,
1: probably yeah well, all right uh, you would say something about this white white beard uh all right but you are, are a kentuckian yes sir and yes, sir. uh i think as i understand it's one of the reasons why you're you have uh embarked upon this ambitious project
2: well it uh you know i i think for folks that are that are from our state uh whether from from the central part or the eastern part there there's definitely uh, a strong sense of 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 being from this area and for me when i when i left the state uh kind of that that grew more over time so I, I was out of our state for for roughly 10 years and and just the the you know, the, the 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 something wants to bring you back here and so i, I knew when i left that i was i was going to come back and and i think uh you know the for me what what we're doing here in, in, in pike pike county was was a perfect opportunity to to get back uh and and get back into the eastern part of our state where i did not grow up in and grew up in the central part uh over in lexington and and it's uh, it's it's good to be back in Kentucky. It's mm-hmm. good to be back in Kentucky. Well,
1: tell us a little bit about uh, your project and what has brought you back here.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, so my background a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I've said th- throughout the process. I was telling you earlier that uh, I, I went to undergrad at the University of Kentucky, and when I got out of school, uh, had had multiple angles on on what I was going to do, and and just given you know the nature of our state uh there there was uh some opportunity to potentially go into coal sales uh did not pursue that at the time and, and didn't really didn't really work out and ended up uh moving to new york uh, and, and went into solar development and was a part of uh, some of the largest solar projects that have been built in the uh, southeastern part of the u.s so they're down in georgia we build them, build them on army and i was a part of projects that were built on army installations so about 250 acre projects a piece down in georgia and that that from so went from new york to dc spent about uh spent about 6 years in dc and uh somebody who was in that world of of large scale sustainable project development um uh, you know for me it, it was it was a little challenging being in that community and kind of hearing folks especially in dc and in new york uh that that are strong uh, proponents of, of that cause, but then yet never really put foot on the ground in what we would call the heart of coal country. And so as that continued on, um, knew that I really wanted to come back to Kentucky, but specifically the Eastern part of our state. And especially since, you know, while I was gone, you got to think about 10 years ago, while I was gone, that's when we started to see that, you know, the, the decline of coal. And obviously it wasn't just wind and solar. I mean, natural gas is really, know I guess about picked up about half of the market share but what was it we might have been at 70% of the the, the uh, US electricity market came from from coal and now we're down to I think roughly 30% and and so for my my take with folks in the environmental and sustainable community was you've got extremely bright individuals some of the most well-funded groups in in the coasts whether it be LA San Francisco New York DC um, how how do we take those folks and get them to invest in this region, and and create you know create green collar jobs, and and so you know solar the thing is with solar it's a short term job creator it's one of the it's one of the number one job creators in the U S year over year so the last couple of years it's been one of the number one job creators but those are all construction jobs on the front end and after you build a solar farm I mean you got a couple folks maintaining it but really. You don't have it kind of runs itself uh so it's not a real long-term job creator uh but high-tech ag so kind of kind of looked and paid attention to what's going on in agriculture uh and and we mentioned wendell berry earlier I, i'd love to hear what I'd love to hear what wendell thinks about high-tech ag i don't know he'd be too keen one way or the other but uh would, you know be interesting to hear what he has to say uh but i think similar to what happened about 10 to 15 years ago where you had efficiencies of technology, where the the efficiency of the technology went up and the price to build came down with wind and solar. And obviously there was government subsidies, but really the technology, I mean, the price to build for solar, there was a couple years there where, where it dropped, like the price to put a solar panel in dropped about 200%. I mean, it was rapidly dropping. Uh, you're seeing that in high tech, these large high tech ag, these large greenhouses where, the price to build a large greenhouse has come down, not not as rapid as is in the energy space, but price to build has come down, and 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 the efficiency has gone up to where your what your production volume is per acre, it's it, you're getting pretty tremendous. So when I was in DC, it was like okay, I, the the election turned. So the last election, what was that? Twenty uh, sixteen, yeah, twenty sixteen. Uh, obviously. A lot of hubabaloo nationally around that uh i was in uh <laughs> yeah i was in a uh <clears throat> i was in a setting i got invited uh to to go to this conference that was taking place when the ele- night of the election and you know i came from that s- sustainable world of of building projects and and uh, majority of all the people there were certainly on the opposite side of the camp on how the how the cards played out that night. And frankly, there were folks bawling, crying, and and everything else. And for me, though, <clears throat> I've kind of always, Jim. We talked. You mentioned, you know, political views. I've always just taken it down the middle. It's kind of best idea wins. Don't care where you're from or what you know what the idea. It's just like, let, and look, I don't. I mean, best idea. That's kind of opinion, right? Too. It's even hard to figure out what the best idea is. But for me, I definitely was not emotional that night, uh, one way or the other. I just think the the message that that the core message that that i think everybody you know could have, could agree upon is i and especially being in dc and people keep do, and a lot of my friends in dc doing really well for themselves but the middle part of our country it's kind of just you know we're puttering out and especially in this area of the country you talk about the heart of coal country and you talk especially southeastern kentucky and the coal fields um uh, you know, people can take an argument one way or the other on coal, and I'm going to stay out of that. I don't, you know, that let, let other people have their opinions. But regardless of what the opinion is, I mean, coal mining is not easy. And I think folks, you know, that have been in the coal industry, uh, some – I would – argue and have continued to argue some of the hardest working i i would believe men and women that we have in our country and so people time and again especially in dc will say oh well coal powered the country and i mean i would make the argument the people of the eastern part of our state is what what really powered the country and so you know how do we harness that right and 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 i you know i don't know if any of us really have an answer but hope maybe high-tech ag is something that we can do here in eastern kentucky uh, maybe a couple other industries, but, you know, bringing those sustainable type stakeholders into the region, trying to figure out how do we work, you know, side by side with folks here instead of constantly kind of throwing throwing rocks back and forth on, on what we disagree about, try to find something we do agree about. And and so for for this, with high tech ag, with the greenhouses, I mean, we've had tremendous support on both sides of the aisle. Um, and, and I think we've made just a really, really simple case, which is you know let's just uh let's build greenhouses and, and 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 work and and I and and I don't know how that argument I look I'm a little I'm, I'm a little younger Jim and I'm not sure how how things have played out over the past 15 20 years but I can tell you you know we've been thoroughly impressed with just the amount of support in Eastern Kentucky um, and I, I was a little weary myself honestly i mean i'm in dc here i am coming into eastern canada i live in harold kentucky now i told you that uh but but the the support's just tremendous and i think we have to figure out so my take would be and, and as i've talked and communicated with folks back in dc like it now is the time to re- reimagine reinvest and rebuild here like what what are we going to do now what are we going to do? But, but hopefully high tech ag will be a small piece of that larger picture. And hopefully, hopefully app harvest, we, we can be a, a small piece of, of, you know, the next couple decades here. But, but, uh, well,
1: I think actually people have finally uh, come to the realization that, yeah, we can't throw rocks. We've got to uh, uh, paddle this boat together. Otherwise we'll be a, a forever. So, uh, your, how big is the greenhouse? Or how big are the greenhouses going to be, and, and what, what are you going to grow in them, and how does it work?
2: Right. So, um, so first we'll kind of start with the technology. If anybody you know has got a computer and out there listening, you can you can get on Google and you can you can look up a uh, great National Geographic article. It came out in September of 2017. I think the title of the article is "This Tiny Country Feeds the World." uh if you just look at it kind of the netherlands in september 2017 you'll you'll find that article but uh, the netherlands is really the world leader in greenhouse technology uh they, they've been doing it for two to three decades uh you go and <clears throat> jim i've only been to europe one time and so i i got a one-way ticket to the netherlands and i went there and, and met with folks until i could figure out that i had a good partner to come back here with but uh, when i went over there i think what thoroughly impressed me was just just the the size of these greenhouses and you walk in and it it is it is heavenly and uh so you got about you know our project in pikeville was slated uh it i think the start was roughly 40 acres under glass we moved down to 32 acres under glass and we're still trying to to re-engineer uh we are on a reclaimed coal mine site up there uh you know we given our structure it is glass uh there is differential settlement on these reclaimed mine sites we're having trouble engineering but uh, so i can't get to the exact size and pikeville because we've had to you know really rework this thing but to give you the size and scope of what we're talking about we our plan is developed to develop roughly 32 acre greenhouses under glass um uh, in this in this greenhouse <laughs> that's huge it, it's really it's really big jim and and when you and i went in so the first one i went in i went to the netherlands met with this large construction company there who's built these things all around the world and, and you really, you don't believe it till you get in, but a hydroponic greenhouse, so they're growing in, wa- in, in a water in essence. So you're not in the soil. And then you got these tall vines. So we can grow anything on the vine. So what we would be displacing mainly is tomatoes, bell peppers, cucumbers. Now what I've tried to say, and I met with, uh, I met with Joyce, the farmer's market there in, in Pike County, in Pikeville, and our competition is not local. Make that very clear. Our competition is not local. If you go to a food city or if you go to any one of the big grocery chains in the U.S., Walmart, Costco, whatever it is, um, it is what it is. But the supply is mainly coming out out of Mexico, Southern California, Arizona. And so the way this has played out over the past roughly 10 years, produce imports from Mexico to the U.S. have tripled just in general. Across the board on every produce. Tomatoes alone, we had about 4 billion pounds of tomatoes that came out of Mexico last year. 4 billion. So... If if app harvest and we you know if we have a strategy of 160 acres and we're say we're going to develop that 160 acres depending on the tomato variety if if it's beefsteak or tomato on the vine or snacking tomato the snacking tomatoes we get a lower volume but say we got to roughly 100 million pounds of tomatoes that's still a fraction of what is coming out of just one country imported here so so I, I've said time and again our competition is not local we want to try to highlight the farmers here and hopefully elevate what they're doing. Uh, our competition is 1,500 miles away across the country and out of the country. So so the goal is, and with high-tech ag, I think what many people are, are kind of starting to see is there's a push at grocers. People want regional supply. People, you know, The, the stuff coming out of Southern California and in, in Arizona and Mexico, it's sitting five days on an 18-wheeler. It's being trucked five days across the country on an 18-wheeler. Same reason UPS's world port is in Louisville. Uh, we are geographically blessed to be able to get to almost 70% of the US population in a day's drive. So the East Coast, Midwest, Southeast, great place for a produce hub. Now the, the typical challenge with the area has been, you know, seasonal, seasonal supply. So you can't grow, you know, m- mostly year round here, but with the greenhouses, we can grow 365 days a year. Uh, we we have temperature controlled. So if there's a weather pattern coming in, this thing runs on a software system on an iPad where weather patterns coming in, roof closes, humidity controls. Uh, you, you've got the whole thing being what we do manipulate is the environment. Now, what we're not doing is we're not using the harsh chemical pesticides. We're we're naturally manipulating an environment, so the plant itself uh, we're just popping that plant on a daily cycle, but we're keeping the the environment consistent day to day. So, from from a grocer's standpoint, we can get them the same quality produce 365 days a year, the exact same produce, no chemical pesticides. We use 80 percent less water than open field agriculture. So think about when the when the fields in Arizona, hot. Field, by the way, the Co- Colorado River is being diverted into Arizona. I mean, you talk about sustainable, like the, our our produce. Our, our, if I'm a big grocer, if I'm one of those top grocers, you know, the, you talk about a house of cards, this industry really is, it's pretty broken. I mean, average American meals traveling 1,500 miles, it's its not going to stand up. So uh, non-GMO seeds, 80% less water, uh, no chemical pesticides, and and we have that protected control environment. How do we compete on price, Jim? We compete on price because we're not trucking five days. We're trucking one day. Uh and we get greater efficiencies per acre, so we're, we're, we get great efficiencies on, with the, the technology. So you know we're optimistic, but at this point, Jim, I you know I appreciate you having me on, but I think people are sick of hearing me talk. And frankly, we we just got to build and execute. So I think we have a good strategy. Uh, I I don't think for us competition is not in the region. I've encu- I spoke it more at state university and and I, agriculture department and said you know competition is not here in the region. We encourage. Other people to do this um and hopefully if we're successful and we can build one two three of these things then hopefully other folks in the region maybe not obviously not maybe not this big but maybe a smaller type type facility and and we can kind of be a part of the the new wave of agriculture here and and so uh you know our team's all in we got sydney over here and, and several folks have been coming in in and out but uh, at this point jim it's all about starting construction so mm-hmm. so hopefully sooner rather than later we can start putting some some shovels in the in the dirt and start starting getting when, steel do you, when do you think that would be well we were hoping uh it was going to be this week but uh we we've hit delays and it's because of uh you know you you've lived here your whole life so you know that you know most of the flat land we have in southeast kentucky is really these reclaimed coal mine sites and it's already done now they are you know they're there uh, but to build on those reclaimed coal mine sites is extremely challenging. You've got the settlement, differential settlement. And and so that, that's been our biggest hurdle at this point is just getting the right folks at the table. We want to make sure the structure we're building is going to be here for the next two to three de- decades, uh, you know, about a 25-year facility. Um, so... It's, <laughs> we we're, we're, we're working as hard as we can but we we've definitely hit delays. It's always a problem because that
1: uh, uh, the earth will, isn't stable. After all of those, I mean, you don't want to build a corvette uh museum on top of it and then
2: have a big sinkhole hit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, you know, we what we do have is we got the best engineers from the region I think we're work been been involved and we've got some of the best engineers from from outside of the region. And you know, I'm I'm optimistic we're gonna come up with a solution to to build these structures on, on the reclaimed mine sites, but I'll be the first to tell you it's been extremely challenging. Um and, and but we're we're not gonna let that stop us. So so we have we do have tremendous support and we we've had some some big folks step in to date. So so at this point we got we gotta just find sites and build. But uh hopefully we'll we'll get a resolution. I can tell you that the folks in Pikeville, and I've said this time and, time and again, um in Pikeville is just the first area that we went into. We're gonna build across eastern Kentucky. We're actively looking in communities.
1: There are plenty of uh uh old strip jobs. Right. Yep so uh I can see it spreading uh in a good way kind of like a, a a vine but
2: uh it is going to be a challenge to find the, the stable land it it's going to it's right now it's our biggest hurdle but uh you know I we got you know we got good partners capital to to build the project so one of the the high profile investors was the founder of AOL uh, Steve Case um he was based in DC and kind of heard about what we were doing and met with his folks and and so a lot of people i mean they they believe in this but you know you i'm just sure jim you've you've heard of heard of ideas that, that come and go and at this point it, it's execution so for us mm-hmm. it's it's great we have uh we have the plan but now we we really need to we really need to execute on the strategy and so it's uh this is really not uh, akin to the solar project that,
1: that they're talking about over there solar power solar. right
2: no, so I know those folks, uh, and and uh, we, it's two two completely separate uh, mm-hmm. two completely separate projects up there, yeah. But uh, but it's encouraging. I think you know we'll we'll figure it out, and we're going to build. I think for us, it's a matter of how quickly are we going to build and how much are we going to build. We're going to build something, but you know, is this really going to scale to the opportunity? You know, what we're talking about, or is it going to be? You know something pretty big but but i do think you know app harvest and i've had to message this through throughout the process that you know steel and glass on top of a mountain is not app harvest i mean the reason i think people even outside of this region believe in what what we're talking about is is if this thing's going to be successful then really people the, the area and the region need to will ultimately need to grab hold of it and i hope that you know, once we start and we get going and people see that this is real and we're not just talking about it, uh, that that hopefully, you know, communities will kinda kinda rally around it a little bit and, and we wanna be integrated w- with the community as best as possible because the only way we're gonna be successful with a twenty five year operation is if if the community wants it, right? And if people people want to be in the environment. So we're we're gonna try our best to make uh, make, make it an interesting work environment for everybody involved. Uh, you know, we've uh, talked about classes on the nights and weekends and what that would look like. But, um, you know, again, the, the only way we're going to be successful is, is if, uh, if, it, if it's community-driven with, uh, with folks in the community that want to see this thing succeed over the long haul. But, um, you know, right now my, my goal from a project development standpoint, I mentioned to you, Jim, I think I mentioned it before we got on air here, that about the projects in Georgia that that, uh, that, that we, we built so I mean my goal right now is to just get 18 wheelers bringing steel and glass here and, and try to get the projects built and, and get them get them up and going but, but I think as we progress Jim I'd love to sit down in the years to come and kind of look back as this story unfolds is again you know labor is going to be the lifeblood to this thing and, and 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 getting folks uh to to help operate these facilities is going to be it's going to be critical um so so our first step is put steel and glass on a mountain, but that you know that's not app harvest, and that's not why everybody I think is interested in what what we're doing. What what people are interested in is is the people of Eastern Kentucky and and the idea that this can be a part of a, a new industry going forward. Mm-hmm. Are you confident about your water sources? We are, and so one of the reason is we take water into our own hands. We um, we we recycle rainwater off the roof and so we have a very large retention pond that will go next to the greenhouse and as as it rains it's uh the roof is slanted and then both of those uh but the water coming off that roof goes into what is a a very significant uh water uh retention pond so we we in some cases might be using city water from time to time when we need to but for the most part we're using recycled rainwater. Mm Well, that's,
1: go, you know, one of the interesting things about you talking about how you reach so much, so many of the markets in the east, at least in the eastern half of the country. Right. Our water is that way, too. I mean, Letcher County is the headwaters of of three rivers, the Big Sandy, uh, the Cumberland, and the North Fork of the Kentucky River. And uh, we provide water, ultimately, to uh, half of the right. The eastern half of the country in, in a lot of ways, and and so I'm uh, I'm hoping that a project like this will help steward our water.
2: So what do you, what do you, Jim? Help me understand. What do you, what do you mean? I mean, obviously we've heard about you know one, one thing or the other here, but maybe what what would be uh, what, what's your opinion on water in the region and where to where to look and what what to look out for?
1: Well, one of the problems is that uh, we have some of the best water in the world, but we're ruining it poisoning it and uh um all of this fracking and all of the poisons that we're putting in the water uh i'm afraid that it's going to be hard to find good enough water for a project like this
2: well you know jim you're uh you're, you're pointing out something really interesting and i don't think it is as unique to this region as we might think i mean water is so coming from that that environmental world actually uh you know, somebody that's befriended throughout this process was uh, was Boyd Holbrook in Prestonsburg. And Boyd, uh, you know, out there acting all over the place. He was in, I think, uh, he was in Narcos and a couple other shows. But Boyd has, uh something we kind of hit it off on was uh, he's writing uh, original screenplay uh, called The Thirst, which is about, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple decades out of, of water being the new gold. And 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 frankly, a lot of folks in the environmental community have already been talking about this, which is, you know, you look. And when I said when Colorado River is being diverted into Arizona, I mean that it, that's it. I mean that this is th- that is a resource that that we, you know, obviously we can't do without, and it's in jeopardy all over, not just the country and the world, the world. So it's really. You know, whatever water problems are, are unique to or we think might be unique to here and the set of challenges that might be unique here, it's people are having trouble with it all over the place. So I think the interesting play, heck, I, I don't know, Jim, I, you'd have to Google this one and tell me, but I, I believe it, India and China are at a big spat right now over water resources. Uh, and so at a macro level, it's, it's taken place all over. And the interesting thing with our greenhouse is we use the recycled rainwater. So we, we, it, the moment it hits us, we're good. And beyond that, we use 80% less water than open field agriculture. Mm-hmm. So if you look at where we're going, with water being this precious resource that, that we all are knowing is going to be an issue, just given the way in, industrial, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. way industry's played out. So we, we've got two things it's going to be a challenge for everybody in any industry really frankly but we think hopefully you know with what we're doing we're not only using 80% less water but we're we're rec- we're collecting our rainwater and then putting it back into the greenhouse so you know w- we feel hopeful that yeah it'll be a, it it'll be a challenge for any of us but uh but i think we've got you know we've got a pretty good strategy that that uh mm-hmm. when you talk about sustainable is it going to work over the next 25 years 30 years you know And, heck, Jim, it's funny. It's like when you talk about 20 years, like that's a long time or something. It's (laughs) It's really not. (laughs) You know, so, but I mean, at least we're not talking quarterly. And I think, you know, when you talk about a lot of big industry, everybody's looking at, well, what's happened next quarter? What's happened two quarters from now? So, you know, we're taking the longer term play, like what could actually work for the next 20 to 30 years? And, heck, that, again, in and of itself, I guess, isn't that long. Uh, But. You know we feel pretty confident that that uh you know we got a, a pretty good strategy for the next 20 30 years but we gotta find sites and we gotta build <laughs> we gotta put some steel and glass up
1: yep and uh, it sounds like you're gonna do do right by the water and that's uh always a a, a wonderful thing actually uh using the the rain and and all we'd all be a little better off if we all had rain barrels around our houses and and watered our gardens with uh, rainwater and all sounds like, well, uh, it's a an amazing undertaking that uh, that you're doing. Uh, we're visiting with uh, Jonathan Webb, uh, CEO of App Harvest. how How does anybody find out more information
2: about what you're doing? And sure. So if you if you type App Harvest into Google, A P P Harvest, all one word you'll find plenty about us but it, it you can go to appharvest.com or or on all the social media sites at app harvest so so we got we got plenty of online content now we just need a greenhouse <laughs> so <laughs> so and we're we're working on that i've said, you know it it uh we could have rushed into this thing and we could have really started construction and, and got ahead of ourselves but again you know we want to make sure that, that we've got a a really, a viable structure that's going to be there for the long haul. So we, we've hit delays, and it's been been a little challenging for us because I know we've gotten a lot of questions from various folks in the region. But but uh, I can tell you, we're not going anywhere. We're committed. And uh, but yeah, you can you can get online and, and certainly find a find a good piece of, piece about us online. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we had a, a major problem with the uh, uh, penitentiary in Martin County, and I think that. Uh, does pop up and and certainly something you do have to solve in terms of trying to uh do some construction and build such a and um, a big greenhouse
2: <laughs> big yeah big, big greenhouse yeah big we don't greenhouse. want to win last thing we want is this greenhouse going off side of the mountain. so <laughs> <laughs> do all we can to prevent that <laughs> all right
1: okay anything else you want to say
2: no i I greatly appreciate you you know you you've got a got a name out here that that certainly rumbles through the hills and and the mountains so we uh we 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 appreciate appreciate you letting us come on let me come on and and share the story a little bit all right well thank you jonathan and uh uh evan and
1: everybody else for uh, uh visiting and being a part of appalachian attitude today you are listening to the show with an appalachian attitude wmmt on WMMT of a Monday, and uh, uh, we thank you, Jonathan, for uh, joining us. Thanks, sir. All right.
0: You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT, Real People Radio from the heart of the hills in Whitesburg, Kentucky. In this episode, we're exploring visions for agriculture as economic development in eastern Kentucky. We just heard an interview with Jonathan Webb of App Harvest, who aims to construct 30-plus-acre high-tech greenhouses on former mining sites throughout central Appalachia. Next up, Benny Becker interviews Joseph Simcox at the Appalachian Seed Swap about the possibilities for growing rare heirloom crops in the coal fields to sell to East Coast markets.
3: When I met Joseph Simcox, he put forward a cob of blue corn for me to grab and shake instead of shaking his hand. Okay, well, shake hands. Shake hands. Then (laughs) he excused himself, and when he came back, he had a box brimming with some of the wildest-looking corn cob seeds and beans I've ever seen. A seed for every color of the rainbow with plenty to spare. Like,
4: Look at that. Isn't that just gorgeous?
3: He first introduced me to some ancient corn.
4: From the valley of Urubamba in Peru.
3: And only then did he introduce himself.
4: I'm wanting to be known as a Johnny Appleseed type of guy. My name is
3: Joseph Simcox. All his life, Joseph Simcox has been obsessed with seeds and the food that they produce.
4: If you hold a seed in your hand, here, hold your hand out, you are holding the integral ingredients that will make a plant which sustains life. And even as a little kid, When people told me that, I couldn't believe it. It was something that just was magical. So for my seventh birthday party, I have a vivid picture that shows me sitting with a table full of squash. That is what I asked for my birthday. I wanted squash, not a G.I. Joe. And uh, from that point on, I've been saving seeds.
3: And now he really is trying to be a modern day Johnny Appleseed. He travels the world to collect and share seeds and also to study and consult on sustainable agriculture.
4: And as I've traveled the world, now over 105 countries, I have come to realize that much of what we hear is merely corporate propaganda.
3: As I understand it, Simcox's take on what's wrong with modern agriculture has two big parts. First is that eating industrialized food has made us ignorant.
4: It's just by the lull of convenience you know, driving up to the fast food uh, window that we've been so separated from where food comes from.
3: The second part is that when people don't know where their food's coming from, the food industry is free to do things that are good for business, but aren't the best for the food itself or the people who eat it. As an example, he described how certain qualities of tomatoes have become more important than how they taste.
4: One of the prerequisites for a shippable tomato is that it can bounce out of the harvest truck, fall onto the pavement at 20, 30, 40 miles an hour and be picked back up and thrown into the truck. That is to tell you that we are eating cardboard or plastic because the great constituent of that tomato is cellulose, so those super super tasty relics of past are now supplanted by varieties that have shippability as their number one priority.
3: For Joseph Simcox, this just doesn't seem like an arrangement that can last, and he has a vision for what could come next. I see the entire
4: United States transformed over the next 10 or 15 years. We're going to see small towns all over America springing back to life. We're going to see a whiplash against the major stores, because as we realize that they have whittled away our economies, as we realize they have taken away our opportunities... We are going to go back to the community, and that is going to be an amazing uh, transformation of America.
3: In fact, Simcox already sees the makings of a movement to turn his vision into reality. The USDA
4: cited some 8,000-plus farmers markets, up several thousand from a few years before. So it's a crescendo. It's growing. People are getting back to food. There's people getting in touch with sustainability, a catchphrase that related to food It's that maybe we shouldn't be eating strawberries that are coming from 3,000 miles away. Maybe we should try to grow strawberries more at home.
3: And this is where Appalachia comes into the picture and things get really interesting. You are in the center of America.
4: You're kind of like the eastern heartland. And as the eastern heartland, you have within a very short distance, say four or 500 miles, great epicenters of population, whether it's Washington, D.C., whether it's Nashville, Tennessee, you're close. I know 500 miles doesn't sound close, but when you think that the vast majority of our vegetables comes from California, 3,000 miles away, it is much
3: closer. But location is just the start. The reason Simcox is in town and the reason he's really excited about Appalachia is that our mountains and culture have done a really good job of creating and preserving An enormous variety of unique plants that are only found here.
5: Some people say that the mountains are barriers. I don't think of it that way. I think we're kind of in a cradle and we're unique in that every holler has got their own beans and and seeds.
3: That's Joyce Pinson, speaking from the event that she co-founded and still helps organize today.
5: Today is the fourth annual Appalachian Seed Swap held at Pike Central High School, the first Saturday in April.
3: Like the broader movement that Joseph Simcox was describing the Appalachian Seed Swap has grown a lot in recent years.
5: We started at our first year, we thought, oh, if we have 25, we'll be doing really good. And we had 125. I have expectations today we will be at 600 to 1,000. Exciting times!
3: And as it's grown in size, the Appalachian Seed Swap has also grown in reach. The fame of the Appalachian Seed Swap is
4: going far beyond its uh, confines. I heard about this last year in New York City.
3: For Joseph Simcox, It wasn't surprising that eastern Kentucky would be home to a world-class seed swap.
4: If I were to take the U.S. map and I were to make food culture hotspots right now, it's the northeast, it's the northwest, it's certain parts of California, and here in this several-state area of Appalachia. People are very, very intense about food, where it comes from,
3: and how they have it. Now, if you're like me, our region stands out on that list. The reality is there's a bit less money floating around here to be spent on fancy boutique vegetables and the like. But that's where Simcox came back to the idea of Appalachia as the eastern heartland with potential to supply vegetables to the whole East Coast. And then he began to explain what it would take to make that happen. First thing the counties could do is create food hubs because small growers don't
4: have the necessary wherewithal to pack vegetables commercially. It takes a little bit of a process to get a vegetable from the field in good condition to
3: many hundreds of miles away. There are already a few food hubs in our region, and they're already having an impact. At the seed swap, we met Gina from Lucky Clover Farms in Richmond, Kentucky. Thanks in part to the Jackson County Regional Food Center, her family has been able to process and sell their produce.
6: Kroger just placed an order for 11,000 tomato plants this year. And I do jams and jellies, so they're also in Kroger, and um, other retail stores throughout the state.
3: We also met people who were growing on a smaller scale and selling at their local farmer's market. And by Joyce Pinson's estimation, many people at the Appalachian Seed Swap are just growing for their own families.
5: It goes without saying that the economy, with coal being down, People are thinking about how they can save money and one of the ways they can save money is by growing their own food. It's keeping Appalachian traditions alive and being self-sustainable as well and uh, creating a good community and a good family environment.
3: Joseph Simcox has also given some thought to how our connection to the coal industry could affect agriculture in the region.
4: Land has been destroyed by mines. I don't have any problem with it having been destroyed because there was a need to mine. But to reclaim the land is also essential. And many of those mining strips aren't necessarily the most fertile pieces of ground. So we have to plant something that's going to be resilient, and those are
3: pioneer plants. He had lots of suggestions for plants that fit the description. Chokeberries, autumn olive, and here's one that sounded especially exciting. Sea
4: buckthorn, if planted in those mine areas, would thrive And it would produce what I call the orange juice of the north. Right now in Whole Foods, you will find sea buckthorn being sold for $40 for a quart. And this is because it's such a superfood. And this is something that Appalachia could take extraordinary advantage of to reclaim the mines because it settles in areas that most plants won't grow in. And it produces an abundant crop of superberries.
3: If you're not trying to grow on an old mine site, Simcox recommends growing something that's unique, a traditional heirloom variety or something unusual like the American groundnut, which sounds really delicious. Simcox suggests growing something uncommon, partly because he thinks delicious variety just makes life better.
4: It's not only interesting to the taste, it's interesting to the mind to think of where all these things come from. It's something about the spice of life.
3: And partly because if you have a good story... Your produce will be easier to sell. Who are
4: you competing against? You're competing against that big store down the road with a star on it, Walmart. I can't compete with a big guy on the price of a regular tomato, but I can grow a beautiful variety of heirloom that nobody else has, make a good story about it that's relevant, and I can compete because nobody else has it. So specialize. You can go to a chef and lo and behold, he'll say, I love it. I want it as much as you can give me. Things like that happen, in
3: reality. Simcox had a lot of advice to offer, and we can't air it all, but this message maybe gets to the heart of it.
4: If you're not big, the way to do it better is to team up as a group, because that gives you more power in the first place.
3: Joseph Simcox's organization Gardens Across America is one of many groups out there that you can team up with. They can offer advice in terms of crops and strategy, and they can connect you with other local experts. Plus, they even have a deal where they'll give you some rare seeds to grow if you just agree to send some seed back to them for their seed bank. You can look them up online, gardens across America, they're easy to find. But coming back to the big picture, I found it really striking just how optimistic Simcox is about the role of Appalachia in the revival of traditional crops, small-scale agriculture, and small-town America.
4: So this kind of love for tradition here in Appalachia is a boiling pot that's going to boil over and influence much of the rest of the United States not unlike the folk music of past not unlike the country music past not unlike certain traditions going all the way to moonshine i mean you influence the rest of america we're going to become more advanced technologically but we're going to be honoring of the traditions past that were so important to making america great in the beginning i think eastern kentucky is a wonderful wonderful place to start
3: I'm Benny Becker, and this is Real People Radio, WMMT.
4: Last
0: on this week's edition of Mountain Talk is a story from 2017 in which Kelly Haywood interviewed Letcher County farmer Tim Sanders about his work to reclaim his family farm on Indian Creek and sell at local farmers' markets.
6: Yeah, I'm Tim Sanders, born and raised here in Letcher County and then was gone for 45 years, moved back in 2013 and trying to rehabilitate and make a go of the little family farm here on Indian Creek.
7: Indian Creek Settlement Farm rests in valley land and climbs the slopes of the eastern Kentucky mountains it sits between. It's a day with a crisp wind, and a sunny blue spring sky when I visit Sanders and walk with him across the farm. He manages with his wife, Becky.
6: And I named it Settlement because my great-great-grandfather was the family that settled this holler here. And they rest up there on the the hill just above us. So it's it's pretty neat living here, thinking about what they might have done. I'm uh, thinking if they should ever come this way again would they be happy with what we're doing
7: Sanders took the long way to becoming a farmer on his family land Outmigration on US 23, otherwise known as one of the hillbilly highways, took many Appalachian families to more urban areas both north and south and it took Tim's branch of the Sanders family to Tennessee when he was just a teen
6: My dad took us from here in 1967 or 68 because he could see that the coal mining industry was in decline even then. And with seven kids, he wanted to give us a better opportunity. So we went to Tennessee, and then I joined the Navy, came out of the Navy, went back to school, worked at Eastman for about 16 years, and finally finished college when I was 40. Went out west to Arizona, and I was out there for about 20 years before coming home. So it's been an incredible journey, but it took me about five minutes to realize I was home when I came back in 2013. I was kind of forced into an early retirement situation, and I thought, well, we have this property here in in Kentucky. I was able to purchase it when my grandmother passed away from the rest of the family. And our idea was to come back and just do... Self reliant lifestyle. And we started having a few animals. So I jumped in with both feet.
7: With programs and nonprofits like the Community Farm Alliance, Grow Appalachia, and Kentucky Center for Agriculture and Rural Development bringing some focus into small scale farming methods suitable for the mountainous landscape of eastern Kentucky, it's a good time to be a beginning farmer. Tim Sanders isn't alone jumping in with both feet. More people in the region are trying to make a go of farming, either to supplement or replace their income with the downturn of the coal industry. Communities are starting to organize local food movements, with more locally owned restaurants buying local foods, county farmers markets, and small country farm stores.
6: We're purposely starting small because, oh heck, I'm supposed to be retired. So we're not making a lot of capital investment in it and not going into debt for everything. So it's going to take us a while to break even and and start generating a profit. But this year has started out remarkably well. But one thing that's in our favor here in Kentucky, the Kentucky Department of Agriculture provides a wealth of assistance not necessarily monetarily, although that's a piece of it, but they provide a lot of technical assistance and networking and, and just hooking you up with people in the business. So a beginning farmer, there are some opportunities to really take advantage of things that people have learned previously and have been able to supply in successful operations. I would recommend starting slow and you know, working your way up to a customer frankly it's not going to be for everybody it's a lot of tough work i mean rain sleet hail snow <laughs> you got to be here yeah that's it there we go. <laughs> <We've> <laughs> you may have heard this. i got interested in raising heritage livestock so we have dexter cattle spanish goats tamworth pigs Wyandotte chickens a bronze turkey According to the American Livestock Conservancy, a heritage breed or one of the older breeds that really sustained our forefathers and ancestors here after being brought over from Europe. But the heritage breeds are not in favor with commercial growers because the heritage breeds are sort of rangier, they're tougher, they take longer to get to market weight. These uh, heritage livestock are raised more naturally. They have to have access to open fields and pastures.
7: With such an assortment of animals in his front yard, it wasn't long before the neighbors started noticing that Sanders was up to something, and they wanted in on it.
6: As we were uh, raising the animals, it's a steady stream of people that slow down and stop and come in, and people were asking, well, do you have meat for sale so last year we decided well what the heck we've got these pigs let's take some up and have them slaughtered at a usda processing facility and put some out for sale and we're sort of branching out right now uh, into a couple of restaurant situations and we just attended a presentation by uk and pikeville on friday about bringing local farm produce meats and so forth to market. And I think there's a lot of potential out there for small farmers to bring things to market. We had the chef from Blue Raven come in and talk about buying local, and you would prefer to do that. And I think many chefs these days are doing that. Even some of the grocery store chains now are concentrating on local. So I think the opportunity is there if someone has them determination and wherewithal to make it happen. What we're looking at here are some little seven-week-old Tamworth piglets. They were just weaned today. Their mama's gone to another field, and they haven't even missed her yet. She was growing a little bit weary of them. So at about six to eight weeks, you generally wean them. Their mom has carried them for about four and a half months. Seven to eight months for them to reach market weight. Not only do we sell the pork, the processed pork, but we also sell piglets. The Tamworth is a fairly rare breed. I think there's only three breeders in the state of Kentucky. And we've had people come from as far away as... 230 miles in the middle of West Virginia to get a boar from us. Nice little breed. They're known as the bacon breed. And the color is just remarkable, that red and coppery mahogany-like color. They're an old English breed.
7: Tim Sanders knows his animals and his heritage. He regularly dresses in period pioneer clothing and flies the flag of Scotland on a pole by his front door. When you pull your car into Indian Creek Settlement, you'll be greeted by the guardians of the livestock, three great Pyrenees and not the mutt. The animals have cleared the brush and brambles to leave the trees free to stretch their limbs. It's not a wonder that when neighbor folk and passersby meet the animals, they want some of the bounty.
6: People want to know where their food's coming from. The people that come and visit the farm, that's, uh, that's what sells a lot of pork because they see the little guys running around. They're not confined in a little cage to, and right on top of each other, and they have the freedom to run and play. And Tamworth likes to forage, so you're going to get that kind of a nutty, more natural flavor of the meat. And because they take longer to reach market weight, the meat is finer-grained and and a higher meat-to-bone ratio. They're just healthier animals, and you can tell it. And when you see the processed meat, you know the difference.
7: Farming is Sanders' retirement plan. But how much work is it for someone who wants to make a go of farming? What kind of land do you need? The eastern Kentucky coal fields isn't exactly the bluegrass, after all.
6: My grandfather had it, had it all cleared with pastures everywhere, and we're trying to do that. And so our biggest challenge is getting it back under fence and under pasture. So I'm never out of anything to do. I have to work on fencing, fencing, fencing. But taking care of the animals, not a bad job. It's a couple hours a day. Uh, every now and then you do a little extra work, not trimming hoofs or you know, doing a little husbandry work or something like that all these the goats the pigs even the cattle uh will eat just like a deer or any animal lives out in the woods they'll eat the acorns and the hickory nuts and all that kind of stuff and they browse for the roots the the dexter cattle we have are much like goats in that they eat the autumn olives and the briars and they really help to improve the landscape and so pasture To me, doesn't necessarily mean a flat bottom land with just grass, but includes perhaps a thinned out forest setting where the animals can live and the the environment can prosper. So They're easy on the land, uh, but at the same time they can utilize the land and help you clear some of these invasive species
7: as we plan for our future in the coal fields much of our hope rests on whether or not we can be successful at diversifying the economy so that our communities don't struggle at the whim of ups and downs in one industry but is there really opportunity in farming and agriculture for a coalfield youth
6: I, I believe there's opportunities for younger folks here uh, you know everybody wants to complain about mining was this and mining was that and mining may be something in the future but really you can't sit around and wait on that if you're a young person and you're looking for something to do, find yourself a mentor, myself or some of these other quote unquote old timers you know, and ask them, work with them I think it's a, a great way to be and it would bring you back into contact with with your ancestors, the people that were here before you.
7: While it's still up in the air what the future will hold for the people in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, Tim Sanders knows he's come home for good.
6: It's made me feel good. A big thing is I pushed a desk for 20 years before coming home. So the first year I was here, I lost 30 pounds just out here trodding around in the woods and messing with animals. So it's good for me and it's good for them it's exceeded my expectations
7: find the products of indian creek settlement farm at farmhouse general store in ermine by visiting the farm or say hi to tim and becky at the letcher county and pikeville farmers markets this season visit the farm online at www.indiancreeksettlement.com for real people radio wmmt i'm kelly haywood
0: for this episode of mountain talk exploring large medium and small scale approaches to using agriculture as economic development in eastern kentucky if you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again visit our website at www.wmmt.org or find mountain talk wherever you get your podcasts i've been your host rachel geringer and from all of us at wmmt thanks for listening to possum radio and happy spring planting season.